Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. I am so glad you're joining me today. And as we continue in this series that we're doing on the basics of Christian living, and um, this question today that we're going to be answering is a very, very important one. I get asked this so many times as I travel around and, and teaching in places. And the question is, is church necessary? Is it necessary for me to go to church? That's what we're looking at. And if you've wondered about this, and I'm sure many Christians have, and I know it puzzles non-Christians as to what this whole thing about church is. So let's take a look today, and let's get into this. What does God's Word say? One of the pillars, of course, of our, our ministry is uh, truth. And so let's take a look at what God's truth is. What does the Bible actually say and what we should be doing about uh, going to church as Christians? So before we begin... I want to begin by, again, asking the Holy Spirit to do the teaching. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you again so much for this opportunity. I thank you for evidence for faith that you put this ministry together so that it will benefit um, people and bring glory to you. And we just ask that you would just teach us now, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would just teach us as to why church is necessary. What's the purpose of it? And so help us as we look to you and your word for answers on this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As I said, I often get asked a lot of questions about going to church. Questions like, uh, do I really need to belong to a church? Or one I frequently get, do I really have to go to church? I remember asking this one myself as a little boy. Mom, Dad, do I really have to go to church? Um, another question, can't I get just as much benefit by listening to church service on the internet without having to go there? Um, another question is, what benefits are there to go to church? Do I have to belong to one church? Or how about if I, do you think God approves if I just visit, just keep going from one church to another in my town? There's so many churches around. Why don't I just all, visit all of them? I've had a couple of people, a couple of adults have asked me that just in the last year. Um, another question is, what makes a good church a good church? You ever think about that? What's going on at the church? Um, does it really matter what church I go to as long as I go somewhere? Can I be a true follower of Christ and not belong to a church? And how do I find a church to go to? What do I do? I mean, these are questions, just general questions. I get asked many times about going to church. We're going to look at the answers to many of these questions here today. Uh, I mean, these are good questions. They are. And it's becoming more and more popular in our country to ask such questions. When I was a kid, I, a little boy growing up, like I say, I asked the question, but I don't remember ever hearing very many adults asking this question. But today, it's just not the kids asking. It's mostly the adults asking. Uh with today's technology, watching a church service on the internet has become so simple and so common. It's to many places and many people, this is sort of the way it is now. Actually, during this COVID insanity of the last couple of years, internet services were conducted by most, most all churches had them. Um, if they had the capability of putting their service on the web, they did so. And even during this time, many churches discouraged people from actually coming to their church building in, in favor of doing the Internet. But boy, there were some churches that fought that, even up to the Supreme Court. Um, they were not going to 
to stop attendance because one, we're going to see the answer to the first question is, why should I go to church? And the answer to that is very simple. God tells us to. I mean, that should be the end of the discussion right there. Well, people, when I say this, and they ask that question, I give that response. They're like, where does it say in Scripture that I'm supposed to go to church? Well, let's take a look at the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at this uh, passage here a couple times in this lesson. But in this passage, we read in uh, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and I'm doing this out of the English Standard Version. Most of these verses will be out of the English Standard, unless I tell you otherwise. We read, and let us consider how to stir up one another, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the day that's mentioned here, most theologians believe this is talking about the end times day. But from this passage, we see that we obtain certain things by going to church. One was love. Another one was the ability to do good works. Another thing that we saw in this passage, God's telling us, is we get encouragement from attending and belonging to a church. You see, the early church met together frequently. Uh, we see this from the beginning of its birth. The birth of the church was at Pentecost, and we see this from the beginning. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, Luke writes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So from the ascension of Jesus Christ, the followers from, from basically Pentecost and, and uh, actually the ascension itself, followers of Jesus were meeting together. And Luke writes that at this point, there were 120 people meeting together as commanded by Jesus. Uh, now we don't have a complete list, a church attendance list here of all the different people. But there were obviously, there was 120 people that were there. And what, who were they under? They were under the teaching of the apostles. And we see this frequently stated by Paul in many of his letters about um, that you go there to get instructions uh, about from God, from, you know, church leaders like the apostles and stuff. In First Timothy, for instance, chapter 4, verse 13, um, Paul wrote, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, until I come, devote yourselves to the public readings of Scripture, to exhort and to teach. So, exhortation and teaching, reading Scripture in public, these are things that are going on, and um, we need to go to church to get some of this. Yes, we can do this on our own, but there's more to it, as you're going to see. Um, but notice that it's said in that passage, public reading of Scripture. This is meaning that there's a group of people. So, we need to go to church. I mean, it's, it's that simple. It's a very easy answer to the question. We need to go to church and belong to a church because God tells us to. Now, let's get to a very important question here. What is church exactly? I want to start in answering this question by telling you a story. I've, I've heard from many people who listen to us, uh, to our broadcasts and, and podcasts and videos and stuff, that they love when I go off on stories, and particularly ones about when I was a kid. Well, this is a story <laughs> um, I recall as a child that my pastor told one Sunday to make a point. And even though I was very, very small when I heard this, it's stuck in my head to this day. Um, the story goes something like this. 
a church service was beginning. The people were in their pews and chairs as the minister stood in the pulpit speaking, the people listening quietly. But there was a youngster chewing gum in the crowd. Every now and then, he would instinctively snap the gum inside of his mouth, making a soft sound, not popping a bubble, just the snap that some people do. Now, there happened to be a lady sitting in front of this youngster who was wearing her Sunday go to meeting hat and all of her um, fancy clothes and stuff and was giving her attention to the minister as he spoke. But the youngster behind her snapped his gum. The lady turned her head slightly to the side in disgust, then returned to face the minister. The youngster didn't even notice this action. A few moments later, the boy snapped his gum again. This time, the lady actually turned around and gave the youngster an evil glare. The boy sank into his chair and lowered his head. Mm. Then she turned back around to look back to the minister. Soon again, the youngster unwittingly snapped his gum again. The lady was now filled with anger and fury. She stood up immediately and raised her hand, signaling to the pastor. Then she shouted while pointing to the youngster, Pastor, this kid is chewing gum in this church building. Please tell him we don't chew gum in this church. The minister was interrupted and actually startled, but calmly replied, Ma'am, the building is not the church. The people are. With that, he continued with the lesson, and the embarrassed lady slowly sat down and bowed her head. You see, the church is not a building or a structure. The church is the body of believers in Jesus Christ. It's his bride, as described in passages of Scripture. He sacrificed himself for her and is the head of the church. Pastors, priests, elders, deacons are all under the authority of Jesus Christ, as are the members of the church. Jesus himself taught us how this body should act and live. And while Paul and other writers give us more in special instructions in the letters that, that follow further in the New Testament. Now, I want to make a point here for just a second. Actually, it's not Paul, Luke, and James that come up with the ideas and who gave us the instructions on the subject of church. This all came from the Holy Spirit. God is the author of his word, of the Bible, and used these human men to write down what he breathed to them. So that we shouldn't really say, well, Paul states this, or James states this, or Luke states this. Instead, we should say these writers under the influence of the Holy Spirit state such and such. You see, God is the true author. And that's why the original biographies, which we do not have copies of today, um, they have disappeared in antiquity. But these original biographies were perfect because they came from a perfect God. Now, getting back, tragically, many people today are not going to church. They, they just don't. Some rely on the Internet or TV, or the radio, or some other Christian organization to spend time with. This is actually contrary to God's plan. Though it's honorable to a degree, it's not what God planned. Believers met together in person in the early church, and we're supposed to do the same. They met together. 
Some say that, well, culture, Michael, has changed. And with the invent of the internet, there's no need to gather together. Well, unfortunately, that's not God's plan. You see, when radio began, Radio services were introduced to the world, and some people thought, well, let's just listen to the radio and not go to church. No, it didn't take the place of the church, people found out. They still had to go to church. Soon after came television, and with that, many televangelists. Again, these services cannot take the place of God's original plan. People still went to church in high numbers. In the same way, we have the Internet today, YouTube and other things, they cannot replace the church. I mean, would you really feel happy and complete if you, when you died and you'd never gone to church and had, you know, personal insights with other people and, and uh, only heard about God and stuff through a flat screen TV? If you're up in heaven and, oh, you're not going to get to see God while you're in heaven, you're just going to see an image of him on a TV. I don't think you'd be satisfied with that. I think you want to be with the believers and stuff. I think you want to be with God and see Jesus and stuff. And so there's a little difference about being at someplace in person, having personal contact. That's important. Christians, we should long to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul wrote. Not watching him on some huge flat screen in heaven. There's something so much more rewarding and important about being present with other Christians to worship him. So trying to get the same benefit and help from an internet program or service is greatly lacking. You're just not there. Personal contact is missing. Now, programs, online services, podcasts, YouTubes, etc., um, even evidence for faith cannot replace the church in the lives of Christians. If at all possible, get to church. There are some circumstances I know people cannot physically go to a church, but if you can, you should go. These other things, uh, other programs, online services, ministries, and stuff, they can help, but they can't possibly fulfill the spiritual needs for worship and fellowship and accountability and discipleship like being there in person. These are what I like to call a para-church. Para, from the Greek word, meaning to be alongside of. Parachurch programs are useful, like evidence for faith. It's useful, but it's supposed to be a complement to your local church going, not a substitution for belonging or going to a church. I mean, you get great benefit. And I myself personally, I listen to many podcasts, videos, um, TV services and, and things and on the internet, I constantly am listening to different, many, many different lessons throughout the week. Uh, it doesn't take the place of physically going to church. Now, a question is, what was church like in the early church era? Like at the birth of the church and during the time of the apostles and thereafter, what was an early church service like? Have you ever wondered? I always did as a, a child um, and a teenager and stuff. I used to wonder, wonder what it was really like to be back in church, like in the days of Peter, John, James, and those. Many Christians, I think, wonder about that. And actually, we have two examples given to us. One is found in the book of Acts. And we're going to talk about that one first. And the other one, believe it or not, is from a non-Christian historian named Pliny the Younger. In his book, he calls The Letters. Uh, we'll get to that one in a second. But first, whenever you have a thing, you want to look for an answer, go to the Word of God first. So let's look at the Word of God to begin with. In Acts chapter 2, 
if you're following along with your Bible, Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read something about this. Look carefully, listen carefully as I read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Hmm. This passage shows us that they were meeting together. That's one. Second, they were listening to Bible teachings from the apostles. That's two. Now, this would be similar, listening to the apostles speaking. That would be similar today to listening to your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, a small group leader actually explaining Scripture. Besides being taught, though, it says here that they prayed and that they ate meals and had communion together. That term breaking of bread used here does not necessarily always mean just communion. We know they often ate meals together. How do we know this? Again, Luke, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, teaches us and, and writes about it in Acts chapter 6 in the first four verses. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there with me, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4 reads, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now this shows us that the church was eating together because a problem had arisen that the apostles were prevented from teaching and preaching due to serving people, food. Thus the church called, um, called up deacons to serve, be servants of the church, allowing the leaders to continue teaching, their important job of teaching the word of God. You know, I'm going to go on a side track here for a second, but I've, it's, it's important, I think. I wish more churches would bring this tradition back of eating together. Having a meal together as a church, or as some churches that was called having a potluck, that was a great way to increase fellowship and camaraderie within a group. It really is. As a child, I grew up in a church that commonly did this monthly, if not more. Uh, we would eat together on Sunday nights. Um, on a Sunday night, and even on nights when we didn't eat together and we just had a normal church service in the evening, um, most of the church family, as soon as the service was over, would get in the cars and they would drive a couple of miles to a town called Beecher, and there was a place called Dairy Delight there. I think that was the name of it. Uh, it was an ice cream establishment, and after the Sunday night service, it was the hangout area for everybody, basically, who went to church. I mean, they all just sat in their cars and ate ice cream, and people were walking around, talking to each other, sitting on benches and at picnic tables and stuff. And it was just a fellowship time of church members. Of course, we didn't do it in the wintertime. It was closed. But um, I remember that happening many more times than I could count as a little kid. I think that really, was really cool. Even in the huge youth group that I attended while um, I was attending high school, we would often go, after the church service on Sunday nights, we would go to Pizza Hut. It was just down the road from our church, and right next to that was a McDonald's. And we would go there after the evening service, and we would just sit in fellowship for an hour or two afterwards, having a meal together. 
And we would just descend. I mean, these establishments knew that, that this church was going to be coming upon them you know, every night about the same time. Uh, I think they even had extra staff come in so that they could handle this big crowd that would come practically every single night. And because these were year-round facilities and stuff, we would do this all year long, even in the winter. Those were great times of fellowship. I remember even when I lived in, and visited the Bahamas and then ended up living there, that on Sundays, there are some churches on the island that met almost the entire day. Not just Sunday morning, but all day, basically, on a Sunday, way into the late afternoon or early evening. And what they did is they each family that belonged to the church would bring with them a large meal to eat. And what they do is they would share it after the service was over. And they would all, all the members of church get around and they fellowship together on the beach. I mean, why don't we do that more? <laughs> it was great. Um, man, some of my favorite memories of, of church down in the Bahamas was things like that. Going to have a meal together on the beach afterwards. And some churches did this practically every single week. Later on, when I moved back to the States, I became a youth minister, um, youth director, my wife, and to this day, she still does this, the Queen of Treats, as she was her nickname. She always made treats for youth group all the time. Every youth event, my wife would always make treats for. Even when I taught school, she made treats for my students and stuff. And when I taught uh, at a Christian camp, she always made treats for whenever I was speaking and stuff. When I was the youth director in Illinois at this church, our youth group met on Wednesday nights at Popeye's Chicken. It was right next door to the church building itself. We met at Popeye's Chickens. We had an arrangement with them. They had a conference room in the back that seated around 25, 30 people, and they let us have it exclusively for our youth ministry. I would bring a keyboard kept in the back of my car, bring it in. We had a, a very gifted, talented Christian guy named Matt, who is today uh, um, still using his, his gift of music for worshiping and, and praising God. And he, was, uh, he would play songs, we would sing, we would pray, we would open up scripture and we would study, but we would also eat together. The only, the only thing the Popeye's manager asked us to do was he really didn't want us to bring in food from other restaurants um, and eat there. And he also asked that you know we buy at least a, a soda or something from there, which we, we did. We obliged. And we were happy to do that. Um, I mean, I love fried chicken anyway, but we were happy to do that too, um, to be able to have our group like that. And you know what? It really helped us grow close together. It really did. And not only that, if we, when we had other youth events, not the Wednesday night, but sometimes we'd meet on Fridays or Saturdays and stuff, we had a guy in our church who owned a couple of pizza establishments. And so he said, anytime you guys want to meet together and do things, just let me know and I'll send over free pizzas. Matter of fact, this happened so often, our youth group came to be known as the Pizza Club. <laughs> it really did. Um, and what it was, by eating meals together, we grew closer together. Yes, there's something about that. In this passage in the book of Acts, it informs us that besides communion and Bible teaching, the early church was also busy in prayer. Later in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we read that the church was praising God during these services. This was done by singing. Now, let me just point something out to you very important here. Singing is praising God. It's not necessarily worshiping as we've made it today. Today, 
in the last 30 years, Christian music has really changed the idea and the definition of worship. We think that the that singing is worship. No, singing is praise. Now, praise can be a form of worship, but it's not the best forms of worship. There's much more um, accurate and better terms for worship than just singing alone. Worship and praise, in other words, listen carefully, worship and praise are not synonyms. Not at all. Don't believe me, do a study on the two words found in Scripture. You're going to see a major difference between them. But like I say, praising God can be a form of worship. Unfortunately, it's sometimes the only type of worship God seems to get anymore. Another source of what an early church service was like, I mentioned, came from a non-Christian, a guy named Pliny the Younger, a very famous uh, historian who lived during the time of the apostles. Now, he apparently, he was a non-Christian, but he apparently got to witness a Christian meeting. Um, a church service, if you will, and he wrote about it in the book called The Letters. In chapter 10, verse uh, or section uh, 96, he writes this, and I'll quote it, quote, They, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verse a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind, unquote. You see, Pliny's telling us that the early church met together on a special day of the week. They sang hymns, they testified to others. They ate together and held communion. And we know from many of Paul's letters that during these meetings, his letters were actually read to the people and the elders at the church taught the people from them because the word of God hadn't been compiled yet. So the early church services were not unlike a typical service we see today in an average church where we have meeting together on a special day Singing, testimonies, eating. Well, eating some churches do, some don't. But it's not that, un, that different in the ex explanation of the Word of God. Another question I want to address here, is church membership important? Well, when the church was born, it was located exclusively, you see, in the city of Jerusalem. But soon after, persecutions came. God had to have this to get them to scatter they were sort of just squatting, and it scattered the church. Now, one of the first places a new church was established was in the city of Antioch. Soon after this, Paul begins his missionary journeys, planting churches all over the Roman Empire. Some of these churches actually planted then new churches, satellite churches on their own. For instance, we know that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. The book of Colossians, um, the church in Colossae here. But there is no record whatsoever of Paul ever visiting or being in that city. Yet it had a large, sizable church there. Also, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22, I'm not going to read, I'm just citing this. John writes a letter to the church in a city called Laodicea, present day Turkey. And again, we have no record whatsoever of Paul or even John ever visiting this place. 
the city of Laodicea. You see, when a person accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior during the time of the apostles and stuff, they were immediately baptized as a declaration of this fact. And then they were added to the local church. Now look at this verse carefully. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. There's something very, very key here. It reads, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, might not catch it right away, but did you read or hear me say, were added? That indicates that there's some type of a tracking, accounting, or membership was being utilized by the believers. Actually, if you trace this back, our modern church, all the way back to this, this is where we get the idea of church membership. It actually comes from this. People belong to a certain church body of believers in various cities. They were members there. And then when a person would leave from one place to another, some form of documentation or declaration was given to the new body of believers at the new place they were going to. Now, how do I know this? It's in Scripture. For instance, Paul sent a letter of introduction to the church in Rome of such a believer. In Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we read this. And it reads, I commend you... I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. You see what's going on? Phoebe has just moved from one place to another. Paul is giving a declaration about her and about her usefulness in her faith. You see, this was a way to protect the church body from false Christians and heretics from infiltrating the body of Christ. When a true Christian moved from one area to another, a method was employed to authenticate their faith and their character. This still goes on in many churches today. This helps protect the church from heresies, from splitting, from perverse theology. As I say, churches still do this with membership. Many of them do. A letter of membership can be transferred to another church if somebody moves to a different city or area or state. These facts from the Word of God shows us that God takes church attendance and membership very seriously. Well, how does fellowship? So we talked about a benefit of going to church with fellowship. How, what exactly is that and how does that work? How does it, fellowship become a benefit to us? Well, the word fellowship, if you go back to the, uh, the ancient language in the New Covenant, which is Greek, the word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia means literally to share in common, or it can mean to contribute to or to participate in. That's koinonia. It's, it is sometimes a word used for communion as well in Scripture. In all cases, it's a term that requires, do you catch this, more than one person to contribute to, to share, to participate means there's more than one person there. The point being that Christ wants us to be unified. So we share together. We contribute to help others and share with others. In fellowship, one becomes part of a group and is identified as such. Now, whenever we talk about relationships and things like this, being a biologist, I, I always think of symbiosis and symbiotic relationships. 
this type of relationship I'm describing here and what's described in Scripture, it's not a parasitic one where one is hurting the other. That's not what God wants. Also, it's not a commensal where one benefits and one is unaffected. It's not supposed to be like that, though I know many people who are commensal in their relationship with God. They go, but they don't contribute or do anything. Um, they get a little benefit, but they don't give anything in return. No, a church relationship is supposed to be a mutualistic one, a mutualistic. Both are going to benefit from this. Now, look at the early church in the book of Acts, and we can read about such a thing. I want to read Acts chapter 2, verses 42, this time through 47. Look at the mutualistic relationship that's happening here. It reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is koinonia, and it's strong here. I mean, it's so strong, it just tugs at the heartstrings of how these Christians were helping and, and participating with each other. Now, I have heard some people, critics, say that this is actually early communism. Oh my gosh. I have a hard time restraining myself when someone says this. This is not communism. These Christians were voluntarily giving to those in need. That's what they were doing. It was not a dictator standing there ordering them or taking stuff from them. No, this is not communism. These people are not selfish. And as Christians serving God, we should not be selfish. I mean, Jesus certainly was not selfish. He's the... the the grand example, the, the prime example of humility. We should follow his example. But I want to go back to that passage we started with in Hebrews for just a second here and point something out again to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. I'm going to read it again here. It reads, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice that the Holy Spirit says that we should be encouraging one another. This works best if we are together. It's hard to encourage when you're in a room all by yourself. And I'll tell you, living in today's world, especially as we're coming into a, what very well could be the last days of the last days, it's easy to get discouraged or depressed. You don't believe me? Just watch the news. Some express it as like having their batteries drained. I'm, I know I've used that a couple of times. That Boy, my batteries are just drained. I'm just mentally tired. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. And I need something to recharge my batteries. Well, yeah, watching the news, it could be that. That alone can make you a per person depressed. Sometimes I just have to turn it off. How about the pressures of your job or going to school? Oh, my gosh, that can discourage and depress you. Some people experience loss of income. Matter of fact, a lot of people have experienced loss of income. 
that can make you depressed and discouraged. Poor health. Having some type of disease can really wipe a person out, can make you discouraged. Actually, even depression is a disease. How about disappointing relationships? <sighs> that can really discourage and depress you. And more, these kind of things can drag us. These and others just drag us deep into a pit of despair. So what did God give us to pull us out of such a pit? He gave us the church. Going to church and meeting helps us gain intimacy with fellow believers who actually care for us. Now, how often did Jesus command us to love one another and help each other if one is in want? Well, take a look at John 15, 12. We read, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There's a hard example to follow. How about John 15, 17? These things I command you that, so that you will love one another. Or even Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. We're supposed to be helping others, folks. This is a mutualistic relationship, but we are being to give, and they are benefiting from it. And you're going to see there's part that they're going to give back to us. Let me just I'll tell you a personal story. My reaction to some of my deepest bouts of depression that was brought on by an illness and pain and suffering, they've been, I get the most help from going to my church. I can recall one time, truly, this is a true story, back when I was living in Illinois, I came down with a very serious illness. Physically, I was in extreme pain. Um, I was even, at times, given morphine. The pain was so severe. And I was, because of this, mentally depressed. When I got to my lowest point, I actually forced my way to get into my car, and I headed to my church. There is where I found refuge. There I felt closer to God. Though he was close around me all the time, it's just being around other Christians, I really felt him closer to me. What's more important, I found people there to help me, who helped care for me. Or another time I can think of, those of you who don't know, I used to travel around in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in particular singing contemporary Christian music. And I traveled um, even to different states and stuff in the Midwest doing this. Well, I was scheduled to sing at a concert in a different state. And I became ill just about a week before the concert. I became ill. And the day before um, the concert, I totally just lost my voice. I could barely utter a whisper. Um, that night, I before the concert was to take place, and I had no voice, and I'm supposed to sing for an hour and a half, my wife called the church for me, and the pastor and several elders of my church came over to my house that night. They laid their hands on me. They prayed. They anointed me with oil as prescribed in James chapter 5, and when they left, I went to bed, and I slept, and I slept well. When I awoke the next morning, I was fully healed. My voice was totally back, totally normal. 
I drove to the concert, got there that night, and I sang praises to God. And I told the, the audience the story, too, giving praise to God um, for what he had done. And I sang for like an hour and a half before this large audience. Yep, church is important. The benefits are amazing. So another question I want to ask and answer is, how can I contribute to the church? What can I do? And I'm not just saying contribute by money. No, there are many ways to contribute to your church. But there's, uh, there are two major means by which Christians must contribute. One is to give of your resources. No question about it. We're going to see that in just a second. I'm going to get into that. And then there's a second one we'll talk about a little bit later. And that's by serving, uh, to serve by using your spiritual gift that God is giving you. We'll get to that one in a second. But let's go, first of all, to giving of your resources. Let's go to book of Acts again, chapter 2, verse 45. We read it. I want to read this again. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As was stated before, Christians are not supposed to be selfish. Look what James recorded. I love the book of James. James doesn't sugarcoat anything. Man, he nails it. And in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, listen to James tell the church uh, and Christians. Um, he, he really gives them a rebuke here. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Obviously, there was a problem in the early church, and the Holy Spirit tells James, hey, this is what I want you to say to these people. <laughs> yeah, just saying, oh, if you're hurting and everything, well, I'll pray for you, and just turn around and walk away. No, that's not what's supposed to happen. Giving in church is just not giving to those in need, but giving to the church in general through offering is also commanded. Christians today, we view singing often as worship, as I stated earlier. Singing is actually more closely associated with praise. You want to talk about offering? You want to talk about worship? How about let's get into offering is more closely associated with worship. You see, worship is not something you, you get. It's something you give. You give worship to God. Too often people are disillusioned with the church because of the singing. It's, oh, it's not professional enough, or it's not modern enough to thrill a person's soul. It doesn't get me to a spiritual high. That's not what the purpose is here, folks. I know many people who have left church simply because they couldn't stand the way that the worship service was going on, what they called the worship service, the song service. It's the praise service. They didn't like it. The style wasn't right. They didn't like the songs being sung, and they refused to go back to church. Obviously, they're looking to get some, some type of reward out of just singing, and that's selfishness. No, that's not worship in the biblical sense. Not at all. No, offering is more closely associated with worship. In church, yes, if you, you heard me correctly, in worship in church is most closely associated with the offering time when you give back to God. He is rewarded. He is honored. It is something you are giving. In the Old Covenant, one would worship God by bringing a sacrifice. Now, today, we no longer sacrifice animals. You don't see people bringing in a lamb and cutting it up in the middle of the church. No, but we can sacrifice our money, which is precious to us, and give it to him. Ministries, 
church services. The building needs electricity. They have bathrooms. They have to pay for water. They have to pay septic and, and other things like this. You have ministers that are working full time to teach and, and shepherd you along. They have to sur um, survive also, just like in the Old Testament, people gave money for the priests and, and things for them to do these functions. It's the same thing. Now, next to offering, listening, believe it or not, listening to a sermon can be an act of worship. If you hear God speaking to you from the, from the sermon aspect of a service, and you change your life or the way you're thinking or the way you're going to do, uh, do something to be more like Christ, hey, that's worship. The change of your life is a living sacrifice and a way to worship. Don't take my word for it. Listen what Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is strange that in the 1980s, worship was lost to singing. And today, so many Christians are drawn to a church body by the sound of music more than what they hear from the Word of God. The second point I want to make here is belonging to a church gives one the opportunity to serve God and his church by utilizing the spiritual gifts Jesus assigns you by the Holy Spirit. We are not only, we, we help not only a church itself, but when you use your spiritual gift, we're helping ourselves also. We're getting something out of this as we're giving to God. There's great things. If you have a chance, if you've never done this, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, there's tests that you can take on the Internet. Just don't take one. Take a battery of these to get a good, you know, more accurate answer. If you can't find something like this, contact us at evidenceforfaith.org. I can help point you to certain spiritual um, gift testing. Or, better yet, ask your pastor, ask the elders in your church that you want to find out what your spiritual gifts are. And again, just don't take one test. Take a battery of these, three, four of them anyway, to make sure you're getting a good um, idea of what is really possibly your gift. Now, once you find your gift, if you have your gift, utilize it for the church. That's why you're given this. God tells us that's why he gives us these gifts. So if you have the gift to teach, then seek out a way to teach in your church. I'll be totally honest with you. Many, many, many years ago, um, I was sitting in a church service. Um, uh, it was after the church, actually. Uh, the service was over, and we were sitting around. There was a bunch of us. Some of the elders of the church were sitting there and some other church leaders. And one of them, actually, right in front of everybody, just pointed to me, and he says, Michael, you have the gift for teaching. And I said, yeah, I believe so. Um, and he says, why aren't you doing what God requires and using it here at the church? And he caught me. I mean, he got me. I knew exactly what he said. And, I, you know, I, I immediately gave back an excuse, which was really stupid. I said, well, I teach as a living, a living all day, you know, five days a week. I like to have a break. And he says, but God gave you the gift. Don't you think it's better to give it back to him? And he, he got me. And so I started teaching then after that. So if you have a gift to teach, seek out a way to use it in your church. If you have a gift of praying, that is a spiritual gift. Hey, how about being a prayer warrior? 
How about asking if you can lead prayer in your church or get uh, organized or get involved in a prayer chain at your church? Many churches have these. Or some churches actually pass out little cards or have little cards in their seats and stuff that you can write down prayer requests. Maybe ask the pastor, could I have some of those or see some of those so I can pray for these people? If you have the gift for hosting, yeah, that's a spiritual gift. Then serve and host people from your church and those who visit it. If you have the gift of helping, Hey, seek those in need and help them. In other words, folks, I could go on and on. The point is find your gift and then put it to use. And this will edify and strengthen your church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12, I'm going to read this out of the God's Word translation. It makes it a little more clear. It reads, in the same way, since you're eager, you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to exceed in them so that you help the church grow. You see, when you do this, this is a mutualistic relationship. When you do this, you're going to discover something else. The church is edified and strengthened, but you grow spiritually. Let me just wrap this up by saying this. Getting involved in church is commanded by God. It's not an option. It's a way to, to get help when you need it. It's a way to recharge your spirit, your spiritual batteries, if you will, when you feel low. It's a way to help others. It's a way to praise God. It's a way to worship God. It helps you have friends. And it grows you spiritually. Why would a Christian not want to go to church? The benefits far outweigh the sacrifices. Father God, we thank you for this time, and I ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, will just speak and teach the people who are listening. Help us, Lord, to find our gifts, to use them in your church, to edify and strengthen the church. We ask that you also help us to grow spiritually. A lot of information was given here, and Lord, I just ask that you just work upon the minds of those who are listening so that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining me today in this lesson. And I, I really hope um, this helps. And we'd love to hear from you at Evidence for Faith. You can go to our website, evidenceforfaith.org, and you can look up a lot of other lessons we have, many, many lessons. And also, if you feel that God's Holy Spirit is saying you need to contribute and help us to, to get this ministry out. We're in over 40 different countries, and we have subscribers from all different places, many countries that don't even um, allow Christianity, yet people are listening to us. And um, if you would like to help be a part of this and contribute and help us to grow, or um, we, we just really would um, be happy to... Uh, to have you come alongside us in this ministry to proclaim the word of God. So check out our website, and until we meet again, take care, and may God bless.